morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 96, and super excited to have former Omaha resident, moves to Omaha, moves out of Omaha, moves back to Omaha. Todd, how many times have you moved in and out of Omaha in your life? You know, too many, Marty, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's been a special place, and, uh, Spent the majority of my adult life there. You bet. Well, uh, even though you're in the land of 10,000 lakes, we'll, we'll kind of teleport you back to Omaha for the next hour or so here on the podcast. But uh, Todd Eisner, the head men's basketball coach at Winona State University, uh, really excited to have him on the podcast this week. But before we talk to Coach Eisner, we, of course, want to thank our founding sponsor, Cosac Chiropractic, located at 144th and Maple here in Omaha. Coaches, if you have any athletes who are struggling with balance neck or spinal issues, have them go see COSAC Chiropractic. You can check out their website, COSACChiro.com, or give them a call at 402-964-0300. Uh, follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Obviously, you're listening to the pod, so be sure to download, rate, review, give us five stars so we can get the word out and gain momentum in the rankings so we can help as many coaches as we can hone their craft. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. And of course, take a look at a pen and a napkin.com. At some point, I'm going to touch up some things with that, but gall darn life start, keeps getting in the way and you know, that's just the way it goes, but I will get to revamping that website at some point here in the near future. We're not talking about websites. We're talking to Coach Todd Eisner. Uh, like I said, the head men's basketball coach at Winona State University. Uh, coach, you guys are about 10 days away from, from starting out practice, you said? Yeah, we started October 15th, Marty, so we're really excited about it. We've got our four hours a week that we can work with our guys right now, and, and then we get them full-time uh, starting on the 15th. Do you have the opportunity, uh, because you know, Division ones have, have kicked off and got going and NAI uh, schools have gotten going, do you use this little two- to three-week window? Do you guys do some traveling around, maybe watch some other guys in action, uh, you know, that type of thing? Um, we have. We mm-hmm. certainly have. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time for us to get out. I haven't gone anywhere this year, and I've seen last year. Yeah. Nobody went anywhere for anything, but... Uh, um, you know, I have gone down and, and when Porter was, uh, Porter Moser was at Loyola, it was a little easier trip. It's not quite as easy to get to Norman, Oklahoma, uh, right now. But, uh, when I was at, uh, Midland and Bellevue, it was something that I, I did often just because I was, you know, close to UNO, close to Creighton. Mm-hmm. And it was a great way to, to get out and see, you know, different ways of doing things. And it was a great learning tool for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we typically did that on our off days yeah. and, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, no, we're always trying to keep learning. You never, uh, you never, uh, know it all. And so it's a, it's a good experience to try to do that when you can. Absolutely. So, well, uh, coach, let's kick off with this. I'm familiar with your career. Uh, but for the folks that are not familiar with your basketball journey, we, we like to start out with, uh, giving you an opportunity to kind of tell us, uh, moving in and out of Omaha and playing ball at Creighton and all this other stuff. Uh, just, uh, how, you know, the, your basketball journey and how you ended up in Winona, Minnesota. Yeah. Well, you know, like a, a lot of people, uh, I grew up in a basketball family, so I was very fortunate to play for my father and in high school. And, and that was, uh, 
you know, really an awesome experience of a, a middle brother that's two years younger. And so, uh, we got to play, uh, you know, varsity basketball together and, and we're fortunate to win a state championship my senior year. And, and, uh, so those are obviously great memories that, uh, the game of basketball provided for, for me and my family. And, and, uh, and then with that, I was fortunate enough to, to have an opportunity to come to Creighton University and, and, uh, you know, get a great degree and, and play for coach Tony Baroni, uh, during his six years there. I was part of his first recruiting class and then was, you know, on the team that those last five years that he was there, uh, before he went to Texas A&M. So, um, you know, that's really kind of my sum up my playing career and, and, uh, knew I always wanted to coach. And I told coach Baroni really right away, um, that I wanted to coach. And, and, uh, so when he te- took off and went to Texas A&M, he thought it would be a great opportunity for me to stay at Creighton mm-hmm. and, and help out there. So that's really how I got my start in the coaching profession as I stayed and worked those three years for, uh, for Rick Johnson and uh, got promoted each year. And, you know, for me, that was a great opportunity to, as a young coach, to, to get some experience. I was 25 years old and I was out on the road, uh, mm-hmm. recruiting and, and, uh, you know, and unfortunately it didn't work out so well in terms of us winning games. And so at 26 years old, Marty, I was unemployed <laughs> yep. and, uh, that opens your eyes a little bit in the profession and, and, uh, um, was really fortunate to get an opportunity to go work at Eastern Illinois as an assistant and, uh, Worked for a, a guy by the name of Rick Samuels, who had taken Eastern Illinois from Division Two to Division One, and um, had done a really nice job there. And, and uh, it was just different for me, you know. Uh, uh, playing for Coach Baroni was unique uh, in the way he approached uh, um, what he expected of his players, and, and, and Coach Samuels was was really different. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was a great opportunity for me to learn how to do some things differently than than I had experienced in my five years playing, and really the three years coaching because because rick's only experience in college coaching was working for coach baroni also mm-hmm. and uh so that got me to 27 years old and i had an opportunity to get my first uh, college head coaching job and and uh did that in 1995 and other than my two years back at creighton working for coach altman um 2008 to 2010 i've been a, a head coach at college level um every year but those two and uh, it's kind of a neat sidebar, Marty, is I, I got out of coaching for one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was head coach of a turbo for those four years. And in 1999, yep. my other college roommate uh, and teammate, Matt Roggenberg, had worked for Johnson & Johnson um, for a lot of years selling pharmaceuticals. And he's like, you got to do this. You got to do this. It's The money's really, really good. And, uh-huh. and uh, I think you'd be good at it. And so I, I jumped in. It was a it was a. You know, really kind of opening eyes to the finances and, and you make some pretty good money. And, yeah. but I, but it was, it was a, probably the best thing that ever happened to me in the coaching profession was getting out of the coaching profession because I found out how much I missed it. Sure. And you really don't know, you know, a lot about your passion for something until maybe that passion is either taken away from you or you decide to maybe walk away. And then the worry is, can I get back in? Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I did. I worked for Johnson and Johnson for one year. I moved from La Crosse, Wisconsin, to Birmingham, Alabama. And my wife and I moved down there, and and boy, within the first two months, Marty, I knew <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't do this. Yeah. And I was making you know two and a half times the money, and didn't work you know terribly hard at it, and uh, mm-hmm. and just really missed it. Yeah. And uh, and so through Bruce Rasmussen and Dane Altman, they happened to be on a. a a trip that the university, uh, the university's president happened to be on the same 
uh, flight home and Dana ended up sitting by him and they started small talking. They happened to be in the market for a basketball coach and Rass knew I was looking to get back in. And next thing you know, I had an interview at Bellevue and so that got me back to Omaha in the year 2000. And, and, uh, you know, 15 years later, I'm, I'm moving around still at, at Midland and been in the home, you know, metro area the majority of that time, except for that one year at Benedictine. And, and, uh, and, but I would always, you know, kind of wanted to see if I could do something at the division two level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'd applied and interviewed at a couple other places and didn't get those jobs. And, and, uh, the Winona state job opened up and, and, uh, so I jumped over here in 2015 and now we're starting year seven. Yeah. And, uh, so it's been a heck of a challenge. This is, has been the, the hardest opportunity I've been given. And, and, uh, and so, uh, we're still plugging away at it. We're going to figure out a way to you know, knock that door down here, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. Um, so you're pretty much a career uh, small college guy. I, I mean, I'm a small college guy. I went to Briarcliff, yep. um, you know, and and most of, like I said, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's college basketball and you're coaching better players and so forth and so on. But it's, it's not as... Uh, you know, it's not uh, the University of Kentucky where you're flying charters around and sure. and the the per diems and that type of thing. Um, what what are some of the challenges that you have at a Bellevue, at a Midland, at a Benedictine um, that maybe some people don't realize just how difficult uh, those jobs can can be, or they don't they don't realize the challenges that you that you face in those jobs. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously most of those small private schools are, are very admissions driven. Mm-hmm. And uh, so take my last NEI job. Obviously, I was very fortunate to be at Midland for those four years. And we had an unbelievable four-year run there. And um, But I think today, uh, it wasn't quite this extreme when I was there. But today, Marty, I think they've got 33 or 34 varsity sports. Yeah, And, uh, you know, they've got about 1,400 students. And I think about 900 of them are student athletes. Yeah. And so now you're looking at, you know, facility challenges in terms of how much time you can practice or when you can practice. And um, so that's always, uh, you know, a, a, a huge challenge. Um, you're looking at, um, you know, a place that at the end of the day, I think NEI now has moved to eight full scholarships. Um, mm-hmm. Many of those NEI programs do not give eight full scholarships. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're looking at $40,000 a year. And, and if you're offering somebody 20 or 25,000, they've still got to come up with 10 or 15,000 yep. and, uh, you know, and maybe more sometimes. And so, you know, the, I, I think the mentality you have a little bit as you go in hoping that you can get it to be somewhat close to, or maybe a little bit better than what it would cost to go to a public school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, but you're still asking, you know, these young people and their families to make a, a financial commitment to you, um, so that uh, so that you can put a you know a, a basketball program that everybody will be proud of uh, together. But you know the, the facilities are a challenge. The, the finances of your budget, the finances of your scholarship situation, mm-hmm. are a challenge because again, the majority of those schools are, are are fairly expensive. I guess big picture when you look at it yeah. and. Uh, and so uh, you got to be very creative. Uh, I think you got to really work uh, at it. You got to, you know, your pool of, of recruits has to be, you know, a pretty wide net in terms of uh, 
how many guys you're looking for because, you know, you take the G-Pack as an example where, you know, we see every other coach in our league at every <laughs> every event that there is. Yeah. You know, so, so how are you going to make your place uh, the place that's the most attractive to, uh, you know, the young people that you think can make a difference in building your basketball program? Mm-hmm. So, um, it, but, but, you know, every place is a little different, too. I mean, Bellevue's a commuter school. Uh, when I was there, it didn't have dorms, so it was a lot cheaper, but yet, then you had to find housing for your players. Yeah. You know, and so, um, like I said, every place has been very unique. You go back to the Viterbo job, I had one scholarship there. And at that time, NEI, even through to when I was at Midland, NEI Division Two, the max was six scholarships. Yep. And at Viterbo, I had one scholarship. Yeah. So now I've got one scholarship, and I'm trying to build a basketball program. Yep. And uh, my, my best player during my time there had a $500 basketball scholarship. Jeez. You know, That's crazy. That's yeah. Crazy. So, um, so every place is different. Uh, you, you certainly look for and want to be at a place yeah. where you know they're going to try to give you as much support as they possibly can to give you the best chance to be successful. And you know, I really was fortunate at Bellevue to have that. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to have it at Benedictine. My wife and I just really missed Omaha. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I got to Midland, I mean, Dr. Sass, who's now obviously one of Nebraska's two U.S. senators. Uh, he was the president that hired me, and he wanted Midland to be good in basketball. And I said, well, here's what I think needs to be done to have it be good. And he said, let's go for it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I took the job. Yep. And things seemed to work out okay. Yeah, it did. Um, when when you were talking to those kids, and again, you're just bringing back memories, both as a student, as a coach. I mean, you know, we've got two kids in college and a third on the way, and you know, you're talking about the cost of those GPAC schools. And my wife and I just, we met in college. We had no special talents, no scholarships or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard to afford that today, you know, Absolutely. Uh, w- without some sort of scholarship support. Um, so you know that you're going into these living rooms and, and you know that. So when when you were in that situation, uh, what were consistently, whether it was Benedictine, Bellevue, Midland, um, Viterbo, what were the, the couple of things that you consistently sold to those kids that you were able to convince these really talented players to come play for you on a consistent basis? Well, I think it's, it still comes down to relationships, Marty. I, I was very fortunate when I, you know, I took the Midland job, and um, Bob Ludwig was my assistant those four years. He's now currently down at Peru State as the head coach there and doing a great job there. And um, between his time, so I hired Bob at Bellevue to be my assistant when I left to go work for Dana at Creighton. So I never got to work with Bob, um, but Bob did a really nice job as the assistant at Bellevue, and I thought he'd be a, a real asset in terms of his connections in recruiting and my connections in recruiting in Omaha. And so through our connections and our relationships uh, with um, you know basketball players but also their families, we really, really tried to you know focus in on um, those prior relationships to at least start out the recruiting process. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, it was really important to me when I looked into the Midland job was, was Midland going to give us the, the, you know, the tools to say, hey, this is going to be a great place for you to, to, to get a great education. And we really believe based on our prior experiences at other places that if, you know, the first guy comes and the second guy comes and the third guy comes, that a lot of special things can happen. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, Midland gave us some tools and some resources that that made, I think, um, you know, choosing Midland from a financial standpoint much more appealing than maybe it had been, or at least it made it comparable to, you know, some of the other programs that have been doing well in the GPAC. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, and then you just build these relationships and, and guys want to come play for you. So as an example, uh, Ben Emig transfers from Bellevue University to come play for us. Well, I coached Ben's older brother, Matt, at Bellevue. And so I had a relationship with their family. Well, and Ben's best friend is James Parrott, who's at Bellevue, and he decides to come yeah. transfer. And, and I knew Coach Cannon really well from having a few of his players when I was at Bellevue. Well, he's got Galen Gully, you know, yeah. still looking for a school when I took the job, and we were able to get Galen. Out to, to Midland right away, and I've known Joel Heizer forever, and and Jalen was still looking for so some really good things fell into place for us uh, right away, and and then we just kept going after it, and mm-hmm. and things uh, um, you know really were positive for us from the start, and then we just kept building on it, and, and once you get things rolling like that, a lot of good things can continue to happen. Absolutely, you uh, also own a unique distinction. Uh, and, and sorry if this is uh, a little bit of a uh, unfortunate trip down the memory lane here, but t- uh, two different schools to the championship game at the NAIA, N- NAIA level. Uh, yep. You know, been in three title games altogether, lost all three. So I, I'm sorry, coach, to, to bring <laughs> that part of it up. But obviously, you uh, you you had done some really good things to get your teams playing. Uh, really good ball at the right time of year, and the, and for those of you that are unfamiliar with the NAIA tournament, it's it's not a sprint or it's not a marathon; it's a sprint. You know, uh, best case scenario, you're playing five games in seven days to win a national right. championship. So, it's it's not like March Madness where you've got you know sometimes you know sometimes you got to play three games in three days just to get to the final four, and you're playing five and six days. Yeah. So. So how, uh, what are the, the one, two, three things that you really emphasize to your teams to really get them uh, playing at a high level and to, to be peaking at the right time? If, in your case, March, but in high school coaches' scenarios, February into early March. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and every team I think is unique. Uh, you know, my, my first Bellevue team that, uh, that made the championship, we, we played six and a half guys. And so now I turned around and really milked a lot of minutes out of a lot of guys. And that was a year, Marty, like you mentioned, we got stuck playing day two of the national tournament. So we played five games in six days with six and a half guys. Um, Brent, Brent Heller was our starting point guard from Ron Colley and, and, uh, he got the Mr. Hustle award that year. And he had, we, our first game went to over the first or second game went to overtime and we went back and looked, he played 201 of 205 minutes oh, in those five games, you know, and cause that's what it was. It was the second game cause we blew out the first team. So he sat like the last four minutes uh-huh. and, uh, and then he basically barely ever came out the rest of the tournament. So did, and, when he got back to Omaha, did he just like go sleep in an ice bath for about two days? Then after that, no, he needed to, but that <laughs> he loved. He loved it. It's the way he operated. Sure. And uh, but you know, so so that was our first time experience it, and and you certainly learned some things that way. And 
and uh, and we were in the Elite Eight the year before that, and uh, and actually I was fortunate to take Viterbo to the Elite Eight our last year there, uh, also, and uh, so you get a, a feel for what that that event like and it was just an awesome experience going when we got to bellevue it was down in branson every year um the viterbo tournament was actually out in boise um but uh and then you know the 2008 team to be real honest with you it was more of a surprise i mean we were good um we were very good Um, my team the year before was actually better we were number one in the country Mm -hmm. and got upset in the second round and then that year just kind of jumped up and hit us in the face and next thing you know we're playing for the championship and uh and and the worst part you talk about you know some tough memories and we're so really proud of all the things we accomplished but in 2004 and 2008 we lost to the same team both times in oregon tech oh god yeah yeah uh, they had some really good teams that yeah yeah stretch yeah yeah coach miles who won over a thousand games in his career and you know, so we were, we were. He he, he likes our team a lot because we were his first. We were his first championship, and then uh, I think we were all his his only other championship was against us in two thousand eight. Also, and you know that two thousand fourteen was really really special. We were really really good, and we just ran into a really good team. It was a great game, and it just came up a little short. And then two thousand eight was kind of the same way, although we didn't really expect to be there. Uh, like I said, the team the year before was a little better, and then. 2014 team with with Midland it was it was just um, it was really interesting because we had beat Indiana Wesleyan in our Christmas tournament down in Florida that year mm-hmm. and and Ben Emmett got hurt uh, five minutes into the game and didn't play mm-hmm. and uh, and so now we're you know at full strength in the national championship game and and they just took it to us i mean we ended up losing i think by 10 but it wasn't that close but like they're starting power forward it was a starter at indiana state the year before and i mean they had some dudes mm-hmm. and i'm not sure how we beat them the first time to be real honest with you but it probably didn't help our cause any in terms of the just the mental game that you play yeah um but yeah you could have some tough guys i think it obviously is helpful to have depth and yet i turned around and told you in 2004 we didn't really didn't have depth but it helps to have depth when you're going to play that many games in that short period of time um but at the end of the day you you got to get a little lucky you got to be good which we were good and we just weren't lucky enough in those three opportunities but uh but awesome experiences each each and every one of them mm-hmm a pen and a napkin university is offering you, our listeners, a great opportunity to learn more about coaching above and beyond the a pen and a napkin universe. In our video series detailing personal growth and development, you can purchase videos on topics like interviewing for a job, basketball analytics, and fundraising and social media. Go to a pen and a napkin.com and follow the links to order. Videos are $10 a piece, or you can get the bundle of personal growth and development videos for $50. That's less than $8 a video. Got a new bundle as well on three defensive videos, transition defense, half-court defense, full-court pressure defense, $10 a piece, or you can get the bundle for $25. So along with that, we'll continue to drop new videos for the rest of the fall. And our latest one is, of course, on full-court pressure defense. Listeners, go check out the Appendant and Napkin University video library. Coach, obviously a, a special place in, in your heart is is Creighton University. Uh, how did a kid from Wisconsin end up down at Creighton? You know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I had a really good junior year of high school, and obviously this is back in the mid-'80s, so recruiting was a lot different at that time. And, yep. You know, at that time you had to be invited to 
one of two or both of these big time national camps. One was five star and they called it pit two the second week out at Pittsburgh. Yeah. If you were going to be any good, you got, had to get invited to that. And Howard then, Garfinkel, I uh, believe, wasn't yeah, it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, there was a BC camp down in Rensselaer, Indiana at St. Joseph's college. And, and I was fortunate to get invited to both of those. And actually Matt Roggenberg, who I mentioned, uh, was the guy that hired me with Johnson and Johnson, one of my college teammates without knowing it at that time, him and I were on the same team at pit two. Oh, okay. And, uh, but Tyrone Hill, who played in the NBA for a lot of years, was on our team, and Fess Urban, who played at yep. uh, LSU. I mean, yep. it was just the who's who of you know our class was out there playing, and then um, so you got exposure there, and uh, and then you you had to go to BC camp. And funny story there is, you know, I get I played for my dad in high school. My dad sent my registration in, and they lost my registration. <laughs> and so we get to the camp, and they don't have me down at all, and yet. It was Bill Cronauer, that was the BC, uh, ran a national scouting service. And I was, I don't believe that I was this, but in his service, I threw a lot of points up in high school. I was like the 63rd best senior in the country. And so he wanted me in the camp. Mm-hmm. And obviously we had driven seven hours to get there. And so he stuck me on a camp, on a team where I ended up being the tallest guy. <laughs> and so I played center that week. And, and, and you're I, what about six five, six six six? And and so I guarded Sean Kemp. I guarded Felton Spencer. Both uh, <laughs> I guarded Terry Mills. All Jeez. three, you know, all three first round draft picks when they uh, obviously got done with their time in college or came right out of high school. And I got destroyed at this camp. And uh, and to, you know I had high majors. And again, based on my high school stats, you know, calling my dad all the time and coming to watch me play as a junior and I got destroyed at that camp. I never heard from any of them again. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting, you know, recruiting lesson. You'll find out who's truly interested in you. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, he's, I, I wanted to go to Wisconsin or Marquette in terms of your home state schools. And they all wanted me to wait, uh, till the spring, which, you know, my dad and I didn't really have a clue as to what was going on. Nobody else in my high school had ever been recruited. And, um, but, I, but I did feel wanted by Creighton, and mm-hmm. I felt wanted by Bradley, and that's what it came down to. Dick Versace was still at Bradley at the time, mm-hmm. and, and Coach Baroni had come from Bradley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it came down to those two schools, and the big thing was Bradley thought I'd have to sit for two years behind the guy that was there starting that, at, at the wing, and Coach Baroni said, I don't know if you're going to start, but you're going to have an opportunity to play. And, and that was appealing to me. And, and, uh, and so that was the direction I went. And, you know, if I, I blew up both my ACLs playing there. And if I could go back and have five more years of eligibility and they tell me I'm going to blow my knees out again, I'd be at, back at Creighton tomorrow. Yeah. And that's how, how's that? that's how impactful it was on my life. And, and obviously it was very fortunate that we, you know, won a couple of Valley t- titles and went to the tournament twice and actually won a game our senior year. And, and, uh, but yeah, lifelong friendships and lifelong learning and, uh, just a great school. And, and obviously it's just blown up from an athletic standpoint, um, since, since I was there, but, uh, yeah, just a great experience to those five years. Um, so I got three or four names down here and just, you know, one big th- influence that each one of these names have had on your career from a basketball point of view okay sure. all right yep. Yep. uh we'll, we'll start with uh coach baroni 
Yeah, I mean, just really interesting, Marty, because again, I played for my dad, and, and this is, you know, uh, just a comparison. So I played for my dad for those four years, and my dad had a rule that if you ever heard him curse, he'd take the whole team for dinner. Okay. And I never had a free dinner in four years. Okay? <laughs> and then I get to my first team meeting with Coach Baroni, and it was salty. And, uh, you know, and so it was, it was, it was really eye opening. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I didn't handle it very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, my first year, I'm not going to lie, I, I thought I was going to transfer back to Wisconsin Green Bay, where Dick Bennett was now building that program. And, mm-hmm. and, and what it was is just a different way to, to challenge people to find out if they could handle all the other challenges that were going to come to you. And once Coach Brony figured out, you know, okay, this guy is tough enough to handle it, then he pretty much left you alone. Mm-hmm. So you're going to find out what you could deal with, what you could take. And, you know, it's, it probably doesn't work in this day and age anymore, but um, I became a better player. I became a better person. I became much tougher. I knew how to handle adversity at a much higher rate uh, playing for him. And I tell people this all the time. If, if you told me I had one year back to play and, and I could go play for anybody, I'd go play for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was awesome. I yeah. mean, it was hard, um, but it but I never knew what I was capable of doing until I got a chance to play for Coach Baroni. How long was the actual court in the old gym? I think it was probably it wasn't yeah. ninety four. I think it no. probably was about a hundred and two. If you really had to measure it out, yeah, I was told it was a hundred, okay. and that just shows you how diabolical he is because. Uh, I came on my recruiting visit um, to his first practice, and that was in the old, old gym okay. where, I mean, it was the balcony was still up there, and it was not nice. Uh-huh. And then after that first year, prior to my freshman year, they redid the old gym. Uh-huh. And uh, and him being diabolical, he wanted us to run more. And so instead of making it 94 feet, he made it 100 feet is what I was told. Okay. I never and, knew the, the backstory for for that, but that's yeah, interesting. I mean, he just, yeah, just tortured us from the day we got there. And uh, so, yeah, so that was what we were told. I don't know if anybody ever officially um, measured it, but that's, and that came from us. I don't know if that was Bruce Rasmussen that told us that or somebody, somebody with authority had told us that that's, that court was made longer on purpose. Well, uh, um, but it was much better than the old gym, that old gym that I went to on my recruiting visit. I can't believe I decided to go there. It was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's something about being with the dirty dogs, you know? So, yeah, that's right. That's um, right. no, I, we, uh, we went, I brought my uh, teams up there for a couple, you know, more than one team camp with, with sure. Fran. And, um, you know, the, the players would be playing and they'd be like, God, this court just seems like it's enormous. <laughs> like, golly. I'm like, yeah. I, I think it's a little bit longer than even 94 feet. Cause you know, yeah. most of the high school ones are 84 and, sure. uh, and yeah, they, they were just like, oh, it just feels like we're running forever to get down to the other end. I'm like, hey, yeah, yeah I, I, think probably that is a, I think that was a legitimate observation by your players. Yeah, well, they're 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 pretty sharp kids. So yeah, um, Bruce, the aforementioned Bruce Rasmussen. Yeah. Uh, you know, just can't find a better person, you know, and when I was, you know, at Creighton, he was still the women's coach mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, we went to all their games and, Boy, he could coach. I mean, he really was an unbelievable coach, and their teams were really good. And uh, and then he got into administration while I was an assistant there, and um, he's been very impactful and very helpful to me. I mean, when I needed 
um, advice when I've needed help. Um, he's, you know, all the things you've seen since he retired here recently about all the, you know, the, the glowing and positive and kind things that people say about RAS. Um, they're all legitimate. I mean, it's just everything he's done has always been about others. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was a, I was a beneficiary of, of his kindness and mm-hmm. his generosity. So, um, just thankful to call him a friend and, and really, like I said, I've, I've known him really since I got to Creighton in 1986. Mm-hmm. Your old college roommate, Porter Mosier. Yeah. Unbelievable, huh? I yeah. Mean, that's it's pretty just, crazy. Uh, he's done all yeah, right. I mean, uh, yeah, he's doing, he's doing awesome. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the first time Loyola made that run, um, it was just something I couldn't make opening weekend down in Dallas uh, mm-hmm. because of uh, recruiting obligations. And they they win both games, and they're going to Atlanta for the Sweet 16. And I've got to be up in Minneapolis for the Minnesota State Tournament. And, and I'm like, I'll, I don't care. I'm going. So mm-hmm. I went to, like, a game that I had to be at uh, whatever night that was up in Minneapolis. I take a red eye. Uh, from Minneapolis to Atlanta with the intention of not because I didn't think they were going to win. I just had to make plan B because I'd be back at the state tournament um, if they didn't win. And uh, so I get there, I meet a couple of my college teammates and, and, you know, they turn around and they, they win game one. I'm in the arena changing my flight, getting another hotel room to stay for Sunday's game in the elite eight. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I, you know, they obviously win and, and I go, we go hang out with Porter and we're at, you know, they rented some place that night. And we're with them until about three in the morning. My flight's at like six thirty, <laughs> and, and we're really reminiscent about a lot of things. But one of the things Porter and Porter talks about this all the time when he goes and speaks. Uh, but we mentioned it that night because, you know, you date back whatever it was, 15 years before that or 20 and it was a devastating thing at the time for him, but we looked at each other that night. We both said the best thing that ever happened to him in his career was getting fired at Illinois State. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, uh, I read his book, and yeah. he, he talked extensively about that, and that's what I, I really like about his basketball journey is that it was just not this linear climb. I mean, he really had to look himself in the mirror and decide if he really wanted to do this, you know, yeah. and I love the way that he attacked it. So a uh, personal plug for Porter Mosier's book, by the way. So uh, uh, tell him if he sells any because of this pod, I, I expect a few royalties kicked back to a pen and a napkin. So, Well, well and you'd think the best man in his wedding would get a free copy, Marty, and he still hasn't sent me one. So I mean, I'm not much help on that. He's told me 10 times he's going to send me a copy, well, and, and I still don't have one. So He's at a power five now. He should be able to do that so he was sure thing but yeah he's at a he's at a he's at a journey but, but i tell you what marty he works at it oh sure uh he's a relentless recruiter um he is full of energy all the time I, you know we're obviously the same age or he'll tell me he's a year younger you know overall but uh you know we he just he really attacks every day um, trying to be great. And, um, and, and like I said, I went down, I was at Benedict in the, one of the years he was at St. Louis working for Coach Harris. And I got, I went down there a couple of times. And, uh, that's, like I said, that's the best thing that ever happened to him because the, the, the knowledge and the growth that he made in the coaching profession, mm-hmm. uh, working for Coach Majerus is the key to where he's at now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he did an unbelievable job at a, at a job at Loyola that was, not a given in any way, shape, or form, and yeah. he transformed that place, and it's put him in a position, obviously, to be at a Power Five school at, at Oklahoma. And I'm really excited to see uh, 
how things move forward for him there. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that that you guys have in common, uh, one I'm sure the many things that you have in common, is you both took a step back approximately, it's about the same time, wasn't it, Todd? You know, where where he went with Majerus and was an assistant, and then you were an assistant with Dana for a couple yep. of years, uh, and you got out of that head coach's position. Um, what was that? And, and, and so let's, let's kind of roll that all into one sure. here now that you bring it up. Uh, you step back, you'd been a head coach for a long time. Now you're an assistant, but you're at your alma mater and you're working for, for what I think is one of the best coaches in the country as well. And coach Altman. And, 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 and so kind of, you know, a, what'd you learn from, from, from Dana and B, uh, what was the experience like going from being in charge to now you got to take a big step back and now you're back to be an assistant after being a head coach for, for quite a long time. Yeah, it was very challenging it was difficult um you know i i had in my mind you know and some people were telling me not that that means anything but you know hey you can be a division one head coach and i you know i thought at that time that if i was going to make a run at it now i needed to do it and uh so there was an opening at creighton and i was relentless i was bothering coach altman every day and and some people enjoy being bothered i don't think coach altman necessarily enjoys <laughs> being bothered with those type of things um i i mean i went all out too i i, I did some crazy stuff in terms of trying to sell him that i was going to be a, a great option for his staff and for the program and and uh was very fortunate that he hired me and, and very thankful um but it was hard because mm-hmm. not only did i go back to being an assistant um, rightfully so. I was the third assistant. I, mean, yeah. I was full time. I was on the road, but I mean, Darren Vries had been there forever, and, mm-hmm. and Brian Fish was kind of his recruiting coordinator. And, and I think I think if he had a pecking order, was his top assistant, and and so I was coming in at the bottom, mm-hmm. and so I had to to make my way. And, and you know, it, it, you talk about self evaluation, and you know, areas you need to improve, and what you should have done, and what you maybe should have done differently. You know, I, I evaluated that. I didn't do a very good job, I don't think, because, you know, after a while, I, I kind of took it as, you know, my input wasn't really that valuable. And I'm talking more on the recruiting side than anything else. And so I'm not sure I did a great job of recruiting. And at the end of the day, it's one of the things I really, really respected in the two years that I was there about Darren DeVries. Man, that guy just worked. He didn't mm-hmm. care if his opinion mattered he didn't care if his opinion didn't matter he just did his job and mm-hmm. he did it at a high level and you see what he's doing now at drake yep. um but he he did an unbelievable job of just working and working and working and had no ego about it and uh and you know i, I needed to do a better job but, mm-hmm. but i really missed being a head coach it was hard not making those decisions it was hard not having a lot of input really mm-hmm. and, and why would i i mean coach had won 500 games already or more in his career and they had been there for a long time and done it a certain way and so you know as an example he teaches and has a philosophy defensively that was much different than anything i've done and i've been pretty simple i've run the pack for you know pretty much my entire coaching career well it's kind of a birthright coming out of wisconsin Right. Yeah. 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 Like you have yeah. to. You you can't you can't leave the state without passing the pack line defensive I, I, test. Yeah. yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. And <laughs> and you know, so you come in and say, hey, how about this? How about this? And and none of them really got taken. And and I'm not I'm not mad. I'm not angry. But then actually, like you know, am I bringing any value to what you're doing? And so I just didn't. I just you know, like I said, um, I think it was best for me to go back to running 
my own show and and then with that you know we weren't very good my last year you know mm-hmm. we tied for the valley championship uh my first year back and then second year we struggled i want to say we were 17 and 16 or 16 and 15 or something like yeah, that and yeah, yeah played played in that cit and oh yeah and, that's right uh, yeah, yeah and uh you know and so uh the opportunity at benedictine uh came open and and, and actually i um i interviewed at uh northwest missouri actually even after my first year mm-hmm. there so i mean i knew right away that i kind of like when i knew i missed coaching when i went into pharmaceutical sales mm-hmm. i knew pretty much right away that i missed being a head coach mm-hmm. and uh, so i jumped into the benedictine opportunity that spring of 2010 and and I, i'd be real honest with you i'd love to go back to creighton ever you know at any point in time but i don't know if i'd ever want to go back to being an assistant sure. so i know i'm probably not going back to create <laughs> 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 you know? yeah so um what did you uh, what did you take from those two years even though it was kind of a fr- yeah. you know it was it was frustrating yeah. uh, but but how did you reevaluate your job as a head coach and how did that experience you know how did that help you become better as a head coach even though it was like you said it sounded like you were pretty frustrated and it was nothing personal it's just you wanted to have a bigger bite of the apple and that's not the way it was going to work at that time and and that's okay it's it was it's it's coach altman's program at the time like you said he's he's got things going the way that he wants to so uh but but how did you spin that when you got back into the head coaching ranks to, to help make you better yeah, coach was coach was great. I mean, the, the, what you, you know, the, his his ability offensively, I, I really liked uh, a lot of the freedom he gave his guys to play. Uh, you know, I think you know, I, I talk to my Bellevue guys right now, and they make fun of me like a little bit, like people did about Dean Smith, and that like Dean Smith was the only <laughs> opponent that Michael Jordan, you know, was. A, you know, or whatever that story is. The, the only Michael, guy that can hold Michael Jordan could, under 20 points under a 20 game. 20 points a game, yeah. yeah. You know, and my Bellevue guys kind of made fun of me for that too. And and so it was a great learning experience to be to be back at Creighton because uh, Coach, his halftime adjustments were, were outstanding. Um, you know, like I said, his offensive uh, mindset was really, really good. And, and so uh, the way he changes defenses, I just don't have the guts to do it. You yeah. know, and we played the matchup zone a, a ton of time, uh, most of the time, as a matter of fact. And he still does it. I, I laugh every time I watch Oregon play, and I watch him play as many times as they're on TV in <laughs> terms of it, both hands up in the air. Yep. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Both hands, both hands on the ground is man to man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that was an awesome learning experience. It just probably wasn't, uh, you know, the right time for me to be doing that when I was, you know, 12, I was 12 years as a head coach already. And it was just hard to not be in charge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and, and so I took the Benedictine job and then, I don't know, it was like, four or six weeks later all of a sudden i get a call like hey how about coach altman leaving i'm like what are you talking about and they're like yeah i took the oregon job today i'm like whoa (laughs) so it it all worked out for everybody needless to say and uh so uh, it was still a great two years of me continuing to grow in the profession yep well, uh, he looked a lot more comfortable at the Oregon press conference than he did at the Arkansas <laughs> press conference. So. Oh, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt, that was an awkward time. Yes, it was. It. Yeah, it was. So, the Omaha Metro Basketball Coaches Association will once again be hosting their fall slate of coaches clinics. 
Uh, starting a couple of weeks ago, there's two more left to go, and they are taking place at the Union Bank and Trust Basketball Facility, located at 21015 Cumberland Drive in Elkhorn. Social hour begins at 6 p.m. with speakers starting at 7. Food and drinks will be provided each week. So come out and hear great speakers like this week's speaker. And it's uh, a Midland uh, coach as well, Sean Gilbert, the, uh, the women's basketball coach at Midland University. There's still two weeks uh, left in the clinic, so you can register at the door. So come out and attend the Omaha Metro Basketball Coaches Association Clinic Series. Coach Eisner, at this time, we, we have the... Uh, we, we have the Don Meyer quote of the day, um, and so I, I dig up a quote from Coach Meyer, the GOAT, and um, this will kind of tie into your job. Obviously, you've done a lot of recruiting and bringing in players, and, and I know this will ring true for you, and, and so I'm hoping you'll be ready to comment on this one here. So you ready to roll? I'm ready. All right. The Don Meyer quote of the day is, sometimes the best recruits are the ones you don't get. Yeah, I, you aren't lying, and and sometimes you don't know that till after you get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and some so sometimes you get some, and you you know have regret, and then sometimes you don't get somebody, and you're you have jealousy, and then there's like Coach Meyer said, there's times you miss on somebody, and then you see it doesn't work out at the place that he chose for various reasons, but. You know, you do this long enough, Marty, and you can have a million recruiting stories. Yep. And uh, um, but it's the lifeblood of what we do, mm-hmm. and it's all about relationships. And uh, you know, you hope as you grow older and wiser that you can get a feel for whether or not you think that person's going to be a fit for you know the culture that you have in your program. And and uh, and sometimes you just get that vibe that you know, boy, he's really really talented and. I'm just not sure I have a great feel for whether or not all the other pieces are going to fit yeah. in terms of what we're doing. Yeah. And, uh, and if you can get a read like that and, you know, and hopefully you don't, hopefully you don't read wrong, but if you read those things and, and you stay true to what you believe in, um, there's plenty of players out there that, that will fit into what you're doing. Yeah. Usually your gut is not wrong. Um, and, and if you follow that, you, even if you miss, you don't kick yourself in the tuchus too badly. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so when you are uh, w- when you guys are recruiting kids for Winona State, uh, and you're talking to the high school coach, uh, you know, here's Bobby Smith. Uh, you, he's got the. It looks like he's got the skills that he's going to be a positive player for your program. Um, what are when, when you talk to the to the high school coach? Uh, what are the things that you're bringing up with, with, uh, what are the common questions you're asking the high school coach and what are the, the, the green light things like, okay, I'm liking what I'm hearing about this kid. And what are kind of the red light things like, boy, that's, that's a real, uh, that's a real red flag for us at Winona state. And, and everybody's got their different, you know, you could go to Mankato State, and they're going to say things differently than Winona, and, and all the way around. But when you're when you're having those conversations, uh, what are those angles that you're taking at there? You know, it really hasn't changed, uh, at least in terms of what we start out. I mean, and it's it's 
I always use myself as an example. Not that I ever thought I was going to play in the NBA, but I always had the dream of playing professionally. And, and then you blow out both your ACLs and, you know, you're 53 going on 80 right now. <laughs> and so the, fir- the first thing I talk to anybody about is how they're doing academically, uh-huh. you know, and, and it isn't so much that I want, you know, 15 Rhodes Scholar candidates. It's, you know, you start to find out a little bit about their, their mindset and their work ethic and their commitment level from a classroom standpoint. And if he says, hey, he really, really works at it, it's really hard for him to get, you know, A's or really hard for him to get B's, but every day he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to get the grades that he's supposed to get. Mm-hmm. That starts things out in a very positive way. And then, you know, vice versa, if they come back and say, you know, he's fine in the classroom, he doesn't really work at it that hard, but um, he'll be of no issue, you know, eligibility wise, but he should do a lot better. Those things concern me. Yeah. And uh, so we start out academically and wanted to make sure, you know, where they're at. And again, I'm not afraid to take a challenge. Um, but with that, you know, are they, is it because they're not working at it or is it just because they need more time and more help? Mm-hmm. And if they need more time and more help, let's provide them more mm-hmm. time and more help. Um, and so that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, you can get a feel from, from the coach, but you want to have a great relationship with that coach so that they are telling you, you know, legit information as opposed to just trying to help the player. Yep. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if, you know, they're not the first one in and the last one leaving and they don't work on their games on their own and they, they're only doing things when it benefits them. And so, you, so I talk uh, to recruits all the time is I hope we do a decent job of identifying talent. Um, what we want to find out is do they have championship level intangibles that go with that? Mm-hmm. And those are the things we want to look for. So if it's the head coach or is it can I see it and I, you know, I tell high school kids all the time, I, I, if I can, from a travel standpoint, I want to be there for warmups because mm-hmm. I want to see how they warm up. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to see if they're locked into the game. I want to see, you know, is it all about putting on a show for people or are you, you know, zeroed in on getting loose and, and warming up hard or are you jacking around during warmups? Mm-hmm. You know, and how do you react to bad calls? How do you react to being coached? Mm-hmm. How do you react to, how do you react to a teammate that, is obvious isn't as good as you and then they don't play well and how do you react to it um how do you react to it when you make a mistake are you the last one to cross half court and get back on d or do you go help get a stop so that it's an even trade that you didn't score they didn't score and so i want to find those things out can i do that through the coach if you have a good relationship with them you can mm-hmm. um or do you need to see it with your own eyes mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously comes the talent. I mean, you can have all the championship tangibles, intangibles in the world. If you can't make a basket or, you know, you can't run or you can't jump, I mean, then, you know, it's great that you get the intangibles, but you probably aren't going to help us win any games either. Uh, so uh, we look for both. Yeah. And then, you know, so we, we really do try to get the, the, the title total package in there. And, and like I said, that's why the academics are so important to us because the game can be taken from you tomorrow. Yep. And we've got one freshman right now that'll have an MRI on Tuesday and, and they think there's an, a possible ACL. And, you know, I mean, that's unfortunate. He's never played a game yet. If it happens, you know, who knows what he ends up coming back like. Yeah. Um, but he could have a degree from one on the state and, and uh, be on his way to having a very successful life with or without basketball. Mm-hmm. And that's our number one opportunity is to just give these guys the guidance to be ready for, to be successful when, when basketball is done, whether that's 
like the most of us when we're 22 or 23 years old or some are fortunate to play a few years but at some point in time they're going to be in the real world yep. um, making a living and yep. that's what we've got to get them ready for yep i i uh yeah so at some point somebody's going to tell us that we're not good enough to play anymore and what are yep. you going to do after that uh I was told that very early, Todd. I was told that very, very early. <laughs> hey, most of us, most of us are. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, I haven't played. I think I had to practice a little bit my first year coaching as a GA. So if, uh, if that was, you know, a couple dozen, a couple dozen days, maybe. Yeah. And I haven't played five days of basketball since then. Yep. Yeah. You know, my bo- my body told me I wasn't playing anymore. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so. Well, that's the way that goes. As I as I when when my kids ask me you know you know what were you good at you know or when you were playing you know so forth so what kind of player were you and i my my pat response is well other than my rebounding ball handling defense and uh you know one other thing <laughs> i was pretty good you know i could shoot i could shoot but you know my my rebounding my defense my ball handling my passing not so good. Not so good. But uh, other than uh, that, I was an outstanding player. So uh, I was smart enough to realize that if I threw the ball to Harstead and Gallagher, I was going to play. <laughs> you know, funny how that works, too. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's, that's how that works. Yep. So, well, let's jump into your X's and O's philosophy, sure. here, Coach. Uh, you're you're uh, you gave us four things here. Hopefully, we can get through all four of these things here. Definitely want to get through the first three. And you kind of mentioned, you talked a little bit about uh, one of them here. But uh, uh, let's talk about your defense here and your half court defensive philosophy. What you guys teach at Winona, what you've taught throughout your career. Um, you know how you teach it. If you could throw out maybe a couple of uh, drills that are that are good for you guys to help teach your half court defensive philosophy. And and again. Uh, we're, we're not on video. We're we're over the phone sure, here, so sure, right. uh, I understand that that kind of hamstrings us a little bit. But I'm just going to let you kind of roll here, and if uh, if a question pops up in my head, I'll I'll try to throw it in and and okay. get it taken care of. So sure. Well, as we kind of alluded to, I grew up in Wisconsin, and and so to not take up too much time, but you know, Coach Bennett, Coach Dick Bennett was at Wisconsin Stevens Point at that time, coaching Terry Porter and. Uh, they lost in the NEI national championship, I want to say in like 81 or 82. Um, and, uh, and, and then obviously Terry went on to play for the Portland Trailblazers for all those years. But, uh, um, you know, he was a on the line, up the line, deny everything when he coached at that level. Mm-hmm. And they were really good, needless to say, because, um, when he was at Wisconsin Stevens Point, that was non scholarship. But they were dual affiliated D three and NEI, and still, you know, lost in the NEI national championship against scholarship teams. Mm-hmm. And it was based on—I mean, you just couldn't get a clean look ever, and you couldn't catch the ball. And it was just—it was just so frustrating to to play against. Uh, as we went and watched them play a bunch, my dad and I did, and uh, and then he went and took the Wisconsin Green Bay job as they were making, you know, kind of continuing on their early transition to Division One. Yep. And I still remember specifically, uh, they, they went 4-24 and 24 in his first year and trying to go on the line, up the line, and deny everything. And that's how the pack came about, is he realized with the kind of players he had at Green Bay and more than likely the kind he was going to be able to get at Green Bay, he just wasn't going to be able to deny everything mm-hmm. because it was just too difficult to contain yeah. the dribble. Yep. And so he came up with this kind of gap pack, you know, make everything be played out in front of you, um, really bother the basketball, make people 
take contested shots. Don't let anybody drive into the paint. Don't let them have easy post paint touches. And, um, and I got to Viterbo, you know, in 1995. And I think basically if you lived in Wisconsin, you better, you know, <laughs> think about it, think about you in the pack. And, and, mm-hmm. and it really worked. I mean, I don't mostly all Wisconsin guys. So majority of them were using it in high school. And so it was a fairly easy transition. And, um, and, it, and we were second in the country, um, in 97, 98 and points allowed. And, you know, I'm not caught up in stats, Marty, because, you can be, you know, not give up any points, but if you don't score any points, you're not winning any games either. Yep. And so, I mean, the points per game average is misleading a little bit if you also don't score it very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why, you know, you go back to Tark's teams at UNLV; they were some of the best defensive teams ever. Oh yeah. And yet they gave, and yet they gave up like 81 points a game. The difference was they scored 96 or 97. <laughs> You yeah. know, yeah. and so, but we, we, we implemented the, the pack and, and I just have been not so much stubborn one. I believe in it wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just have not gotten terribly creative with changing a lot. Um, the one thing we've, you know, messed with and tinkered with a little bit, um, was did we full front everything, continue to full front everything in the post. And we've gone, away from that a little bit here at Winona State, um, where we now we will post double. Um, and so that's changed up, you know, how we do some things in the, you know, starting with once the ball is touched into the post. Mm-hmm. Um, are you so guys, are you one, guys doing like three quarter bottom side, three quarter yeah, top? Three quarter or? high side. We go three quarter top, okay. um, which has had to change a little bit. So go back to the turbo Bellevue and Midland. Mm-hmm. We fronted everything. Okay. Didn't matter. And we just made the fives front everything. And we've always fronted everything one through four. Um, but one five, we just made them front everything. And it was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you weren't terribly, you know, athletic in terms of decent feet as a big. And then two, you had to have a lot of fight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we just did it. We made them do it. And, uh, you know, I got here and I had uh, a post going into years three and four that just really struggled to move his feet. And uh, so that was one thing we changed. The other thing we changed, again, because of that, is we had always hard-hedged every ball screen on the wing. And uh, and we now ice all side ball screens. Mm-hmm. And so those would be the two big adjustments. Um, I guess three big adjustments. And now we switch everything one through four. And that was more, you know, I... It, we don't need to bore people with that, but you know, I took this job one week before school started mm-hmm. and there was just the timing of the situation, how that all went down. And, um, so I got here August 17th and we started school on August 24th Wow! and their previous, you know, staff and the way they played, they had switched one through four and it was what they were most comfortable doing. And I was trying to minimize, you know, how uncomfortable they were. And I'm not sure I've, I've liked it. I can't say I'm in love with it. And the only reason I'm not in love with it, I do like it, but I'm not in love with it just from an accountability standpoint, because where I, where I think we've struggled with some accountability defensively, um, is if I'm guarding you and we don't switch and you, you get 24 points. I know I guarded horribly. Mm -hmm. And if you switch one through four, I think a little bit in our head sometimes, 
you can walk out of the locker room saying, yeah, the guy I started on got 24 tonight, but I don't, I know I wasn't the reason mm-hmm. because you're switching one through four. Yeah. And so you can walk out of there and you could kind of trick yourself. I think, unfortunately, into thinking it wasn't necessarily a lot of your responsibility where if you don't switch one through four and my man goes off, I played really poorly. Mm-hmm. Or if, you know, I guarded their leading scorer and he had a bad night. I know I was a big reason as to why we did well. Yeah. And uh, so we've, so those would be the three big swings in what we've done. And then with that, when you go three quarters on the high side and you're going to post double, you can't let the ball go baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we forced everything baseline when we full fronted. I mean, we made it go baseline. Yeah. And so now we just kind of, uh, the, the, the analogy we use when we're guarding on the wing, coach, are we forcing middle? No, we're not forcing middle. So we're forcing baseline. No, we're not forcing baseline. We just, anything free throw line and below, we put our butt to the rim okay. is our stance. And we don't, we don't let them get to the elbow. And then we don't let them get to the paint if they mm-hmm. drive baseline. Mm-hmm. And because at the end of the day, with our five man, three quarter, you know, high side, if he beats you baseline, you've got no help there. Yep. It would have to come from the far side, which that's a long rotation, and it puts us way out of whack on the backside. And so we just really, really work to get in their head that you're going to square up the dribble and or square up the ball. And then if he puts it on the deck, he better not be able to make what we call a bend that bends into the paint if you drive baseline. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, and then the middle part hasn't really changed much. At the end of the day, you do not let him get to the elbow. Yep. And uh, so those are the kind of the, the three changes, I guess, over time mm-hmm. um, that we've made in terms of what our version of the pack is. So when you double and you're on that three-quarter top side, uh, do you have like, okay, guys, we're guarding, you know, plums out there tonight for Mankato State, all right? And if you got plum and the ball goes into the post, you're doubling down. Or do you, do you, how, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you work that uh, yeah. double down scheme? Great, great question. Um, that's one of the things we have not even argued about. We just decided again to stay very consistent. I just, I don't believe, and maybe it's poor coaching because I'll give you an example and I'll, you know, I'll kind of answer it with something that I've noticed with Porter. And I guess I would say shows you how much of a better job he does than me. I guess I would look at it. Porter will double five or six different ways. And so I got the post double from him Mm -hmm. and he loved it, but he will post double with different people. So let's just say again, that we're, we're playing against you and you're a poor shooter in that particular game. We're going to double off you. Now, just remember, okay. I could shoot it, Todd. Just okay. remember, I could shoot it. As an I know. I, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, but they. But let's say so. We're going to double off you because you're not shooting it well. Okay. And then, um, you know, the and, and let's say you're the point guard. Okay. And then the next game, their four man doesn't shoot it very well. So the next game, Porter will del- he'll double off the four. So mm-hmm. it's a completely different defensive player that will be, and, and, and Porter still switches one through four. Okay. So now it's, I mean, he's got him trained so well that it could be the point, the defensive point guard, you know, on this possession, doubling, and then it could be the three-man doubling. Mm-hmm. We we doubled off of our four-man, no matter who he's guarding, our four-man doubles every single time. Okay. So it's a post-to-post, post-double. Okay. And so, again, with us switching one through four, it doesn't mean we're leaving the four-man. 
it means the foreman for us defensively, no matter where he is, is going to come on what we call fire. Okay. Porter calls it monster. I didn't want to copy him on everything, so we call it fire. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, so with that, like the teaching point for our bigs is the big never wants their their big their five man to get his body into you before the ball comes into the post. So when the ball's above the free throw line, we are still at the five. We are still on the line, up the line, because we want no direct entries into the post from above the free throw line. Mm-hmm. So we, we rely on ball pressure, which go back to the start of what we do with the pack. The ball pressure is key to everything. Yeah. We want to make whoever's got the ball uncomfortable, no matter where they're at. Mm-hmm. Can't give can't, can't, can't them turn the corner and get downhill on you, but he can't just stand there and, you know, be comfortable throwing or shooting and making passes and seeing the floor. Um, but then from a post standpoint, if the ball's above the free throw line, he's on the line, up the line, closed out and doesn't allow the ball to get there. As soon as the ball gets below free throw line or below, we call it, we press down and basically put my chin on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then we split the high leg. And and then don't let a direct entry. So, I mean, if he's going to put his baseline hand out, we want him to make him, you know, kind of push him off the block if we can without fouling and throw it to that outside hand where he's got to move to go get it. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, then the next point is what we call the slip point. And as that ball is in the air, and again, go back to ball pressure. If you're able to throw a seed even to that outside hand, that's not good for our post defense. Yep. We want we want ball pressure to make him have to change the angle of that pass, preferably in a floating manner, mm-hmm. so that that slip point has time. Because as that ball is in the air, our slip point is to get us squared mm-hmm. to the to the catch. And then as that ball is there, the four has been cheating, and if our four. Our, our best player last well the last couple of years transferred to Valparaiso this year, um, so he did that you know, Division two to Division one transfer, and mm-hmm. uh, he was our starting foreman. He he got to be awesome at it. The guy we have playing right now is gonna, is awesome at it too. Mm-hmm. But these guys learn no matter where the ball is and where their man is, they learn to cheat mm-hmm. to the post if we think they're gonna throw it in. Mm-hmm. And so as we pressure the ball and make that ball hopefully be floated to the post, we get the slip point to get behind on the catch. And then that foreman is there breathing on him, mm-hmm. hopefully the second he catches the ball. Mm-hmm. And you can't let the ball get split. The big can't let him turn baseline. And then obviously our goal is to make him make a pass through four hands. Mm-hmm. And so, and then flip it. We talked about how, like, who's coming to double? The foreman for us is always coming to double. And then the one thing we get questions on, and we've just decided to stay consistent. Let's just say the post we're playing against averages three points a game. Why does it? Why do you double? Well, there's a good chance that that three points a game also isn't a good passer. Yeah, and you should be amazed how many times he throws the ball to us. Mm-hmm. And so we don't care if he if he's their leading scorer or if he's their worst scorer. Mm-hmm. Anytime it's thrown into the post, we go get it. Mm-hmm. Is, is is that is that post to post? Uh, and I think I know the answer to this. The big, you know, one of the big reasons why you do it is just to put as much length on the ball to make it absolutely make it hard to shoot, obviously. And, yep. and but then also, like you said, hard to pass it out. Yep, absolutely. And then with that, the only like if you want to talk about the only time we ever deny a pass is we never let the entry man catch the ball again. Okay. So if we if they have a wing entry into the post, mm-hmm. the guy guarding him now face guards him. Okay. Now, let's say you run a post split at the elbow like the Utah Jazz used to do. 
Mm-hmm. That would that would be a split. That would be a, a switch for us. So let's say he goes and screens at the elbow, and they bring a guy from the top of the key over to that wing. We would switch that and deny it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do not let the ball go back out to the passer on that ball side. We want him to throw it up top. If he throws it cross court, then it's a horrible double team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we use the most length. And as an example, my toughest guy on my team and a four year starter uh, is our point guard, but he's five foot nine. So it's not going to do a whole lot of good to have him come post double. Sure. Um, you know, the six, nine post players are just going to put their hand on the top of his head and throw over the top of him, <laughs> you know? And, uh, um, so we do, we want as much length as possible. So we've just stayed consistent with it. Um, it has worked pretty well. Northern state, the year they lost in the national championship had two really big post players who were unbelievable passers and they carved us up like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Um, Got it out of there quickly. We're really good passers, and our rotations are really bad. But other than that, you know, we feel like it's been, for the most part, pretty effective in terms of helping our posts that we didn't think defending one-on-one was a good option for us. Mm-hmm. So when you're um, – so let's say the ball's on the wing. Your, your, your four-man is playing basically man-and-a-half. Um, and, you know, what, what are you teaching your other two perimeters – off the ball that yep. are not guarding the wing entry and and they're not obviously right, playing double. the post and they're not getting ready yeah. to double. So what's the yeah. what's the instructions for the other two perimeter kids? Great question. Great question. So the other two help side guys, one goes to the nail. And again, this isn't like by position. It's just based on where they are when the ball's thrown into the post. Mm-hmm. So the help ends up being at the nail and then it's called the MIG, the most important guy. And he is right on top of the charge uh, arc in our, on our court. So high school doesn't have that um, on most courts, I don't think, um, unless they're playing on a college court. But we, we basically make an eye mm-hmm. at the free throw line, the nail, and then the most important guy is at that charge arc. Mm-hmm. And any cutters that come into the paint, they got to pass them to each other. We do not want any dives. they got to fake. They cannot get face cut on any dives into the paint. So let's, again, most teams against us will take, like, let's just say they're in, like, a typical shell type four-out, one-in offense. Most teams are going to take the opposite high guy and dive him to the front of the rim. And so, like, our nail guy will kind of bump him, check him first, and then he'll pass them to the MIG. Mm-hmm. And that MIG has got to make sure he doesn't get posted or face cut. Mm-hmm. And our goal is to make him think he should be able to throw it like opposite wing. And then if it's a good post, we get a deflection or whatever it may be. Um, and then that the, the nail guy will kind of read up top. Can he cheat over to the ball side top guy? I mean, where, where are they positioned? It depends on where He's they cut. He's just making a basketball play at that point. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, so those, the two help side guy, that's a great question. It's the, the nail and the MIG and they form an eye. Okay. And they've got to talk each other, to each other and make sure nobody gets into the paint and is a factor in terms of catching the basketball. So let's keep playing this possession out here. Yep. They, they, they get a kick out yep. on, on your scout. And I don't know if it would be based on the scout. I guess there's a reason why I'm asking a question based on the scout or is it just, here's what we're going to do every time. 
Um, is it a is it a short closeout, and we're not going to get a, we're not going to give up a blow by, or are we closing hard? We're not going to let the catch and shoot happen, and we're going to move this kid off the line and make make him shoot off the bounce. Uh, let's say they get a clean kick out uh, out of the double team, and your nail guy and your mig guy are now closing out on yeah. on there. What are you guys pretty consistently teaching there? You know, and the reporter just did something with Oklahoma basketball about their first week of practice. And, you know, we're still seven years into it. I just, every day, I just, I mean, keep beating into their heads about communicate, 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 because obviously you're going to have some version of a rotation if the ball gets kicked out. Mm-hmm. And and so the nail is the guy taking the first pass high. Mm-hmm. If it goes cross court, which again, we don't want, but if it does, then if it's a cross court high, then it's probably still going to be the nail. Mm-hmm. If it would be cross court, you know, almost you know below the free throw line, then it's probably going to be the MIG going to get it. But they've got to talk it through, and then it's a matter of with that, you got to tell the foreman like where's his rotation going. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just say, as an example, we throw it in on the the left block, we get a double, and he throws it like straight up the lane line back mm-hmm. out. Okay. Well, that would be the nail going to get him. Yep. The the MIG would. If it, you know, if it was four out one in, would get into his gap at about the free throw line, mm-hmm. and then the four man would peel off and go, opposite. you know, into the paint opposite. Yep. And uh, but in terms of closeouts and scouting, that, that would be a scouting report close every okay. single time. Okay. And and that's where you know we've got to be on top of scouting reports because again, if one if we're switching, two, you know, good teams aren't just going to throw the ball in four out one in and stand there, mm-hmm. so that the next time you look to see it's the same guy there. So it could easily be, you know, their best shooter could be the one throwing it in. Well, he's going to move, and we've got to be able to see on our rotations. Am I closing on a guy that we have to make him put it on the floor? Or is it, you know, we do the NBA closeouts. We have Rondos, we have Kobe's, and we have Corbers. And you better know which one you're going to. And uh, uh, because, again, you go back to the Northern State stuff when they killed us, I mean, they all could really shoot it. Mm-hmm. And so we just couldn't get to them. And so now they, I mean, I want to say they hit 10 threes on us that year in the first half because we, you know, stubbornly stayed with it. <laughs> and they just said, hey, we're going to laugh at you guys the whole game while we <laughs> set a school record for most threes made in the game. You know, and, uh, um, but like I said, that's a unique situation. But yeah, we, we expect our guys to know the scouting report, know who they're closing on, and execute the closeout based on their skill set. Mm-hmm. So how are you? How are you teaching all this to your guys? Um, you know, what's what? I, I shouldn't say that. Let's let's rephrase that question. What are one or two really good drills that you guys do that you feel like helps teach these concepts as as much as as possible? Well, a big thing, you know, we really want to get in their head. Our guys, like, so again, to back up a little bit, right now we're in our an NCAA mandated preseason, so we get four hours a week with them on the court. So, as an example, this week we're going to do four one-hour practices at seven a.m. Mm-hmm. And you know, the majority of these one-hour practices that we've done to date have been mostly defense. Mm-hmm. Um, closeouts are really, really big for us. I mean, it's uh, you know, again, we talk about guarding your yard, we talk about fighting the dribble. Um, those are obviously really, really important. But we've got to have the ability to understand scouting report, but we do not, I mean, the three has become such a vital part of what we're doing. 
we've relied on it two years ago or I can't remember what years now I'm getting all mixed up, but we set an SIC record. We did for most threes made and attempted in a season. And, you know, so we're obviously a group that wants to shoot a ton of threes. So our closeouts are really, really, really important. We work on them every day. Um, so one of the things we like, it's not, I mean, it is realistic. It just is really challenging. We, uh, we call it diagonal closeouts. It's two teams. Each team gets two minutes uh, to close out and get stops. And it's how many stops you get in two minutes. Losing team has to round, you know what, what you can put whatever you want into it. But mm-hmm. you basically put your shell together out on the floor and white is on one side, purple's on the other side. You start with the ball in the corner. That corner guy throws it to his teammate, free throw line extended. And as he throws it to his teammate, free throw line extended on the same side, he is now making a diagonal closeout to the opposite top guy mm-hmm. on the white team. The top guy that caught the first pass now throws it to the guy that the, the corner guy is sprinting out to and closing on. He catches it and throws the ball to his teammate in the corner. And that top guy in purple is diagonally closing out at that guy. And the drill is live from right there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I explained that very well. No, I, so I, I remember it, seeing it, it, coach Mack and coach Altman both running that drill. Yeah. Okay, so so yep. it's, it's a series of three passes. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it gets to the corners, you're passing it around the horn basically. Yep. And we, we make it cause the guys that cheat the drill a little bit where they don't close real hard on the first guy up top because in theory, he's not the one shooting it. Mm-hmm. So after a while, we'll just say whoever is open can play. And so now the first guy's got to get there and close on him. But to start out, we want the ball going all the way around the horn to the corner. And so it'll be the, the guy that caught the first pass will be the one closing on him uh, live. And then the guy that ran the first kind of token closeout has to get and jump to his gap and now it's basically two on two on one side of the floor. Mm-hmm. And what happens is because you got to get there, that is a hard closeout that you're sprinting from, you know, the top on one side to the corner on the other. You can't give up the shot, but you're, you know, if you don't break down and chop your feet and anticipate, it's almost an automatic blow by. Mm-hmm. And so again, but you, you get that possession that goes in, you kick the ball to the next two guys in line and, and you try to get the guys to rotate lines. So they're playing the, both spots throughout the two minutes and whatever team gets the, the uh, most stops. So that's how we work on some live closeouts. We'll do um, in terms of just fighting the dribble. We do a lot of one-on-one Marty. Yeah. We just a lot of one-on-one uh, three dribble max for the offense because we still want it to be important uh, that they are figuring out ways to do game like, um, you know, offensive skill sets, which we do a ton of time in our, our, preseason and postseason working on footwork and working on uh you know scoring drives and and keeping our game really efficient on that end of the floor but then with that um we want them to be exposed one-on-one you got no help that ball can't get to the elbow that ball can't get to you know bend to the end of the paint going baseline mm-hmm. uh, and then with that and this is where we've struggled so far um our guys haven't done a great job of contesting shots and they're they're, they're fooling themselves you know, they, they get that little token hand going to like somebody's chest or they go get to their chin and we really want them going to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I'll go with you and me, you know, we both relied on being good shooters. Mm-hmm. And, and so at the end of the day, 
we got to get in the mindset defensively. we got to do anything we can to distract their vision. I don't care if you got beat bad and there's three or four feet of cushion when he goes up for the shot. We still want you to reach for the ceiling and do something to distract his vision. Mm-hmm. Good shooter's probably still going to make it, yeah. but I can tell you he's got a really good chance of making it if you say I'm four feet away. Why put a hand up? Yeah, why even bother? And uh, and so we've got to get better there. I talk to our guys all the time. It's, it could be the difference of just six inches. Mm-hmm. You know, six inches more effort to try to you know, distract his vision. And uh, it was two, uh, what, my third year here, we were 19 and 10. And we had a tough loss in the first round of the tournament. And we looked back at it. And our defensive field goal percentage was not great that year. And I want to say it was like 45.2 or something like that. And I went back and statted all our stuff. And it was literally, Brad Stevens says that quote, sometimes the difference between a good team and a great team or a good team and a bad team is as simple as three possessions a game. Yep. If we would have gotten three more stops a game, our defensive field goal percentage, I think, would have been 41.9. Yep. We would have won a few more games. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, it, and so there's that six inches we talk about, you know, is, is could you have committed to six more inches on your contests mm-hmm. to put us in a position where, you know, is it a difference of one more win, two mm-hmm. more wins, yeah. three more wins. Yep. And now you're, you know, playing to go to the postseason yep. or you're in the po- or you're in the postseason. Yep. And I don't think that's too much to ask our guys to commit to. And so it'll be a big emphasis for us this year. Yeah. You know, one thing, you know, and it's easy in the high school game because you got the four quarters there. You know, can we just get one more stop a quarter? If, you know, if you get just one more stop a quarter and you find a way to get one more score a quarter, well, shoot, that's a, I I teach history, but I could figure that math out. That's a 16 point swing. Just yep. by just by getting, it's not anything spectacular. It's just one more of those each quarter, and look how much that would change the uh, perception of the yep. game and and how you look at it and what the final result will be. So, uh, no doubt, no doubt about it. And then you, you, you add on top of that, just the you know the transition of when things don't go well for you offensively, and mm-hmm. that's where we struggled last year. I mean, we only got to play thirteen games, and we were seven and six, and we didn't we didn't guard well at all last year. Now we had two starters miss the year with knee injuries, and certainly that's a factor. One was our best perimeter defensive player, but um, you know we didn't do a great job when you know we're like any other team. It, the the ones that struggle are the ones that you know, let their offense affect their defense. Mm-hmm. And we were one of when we were one of those teams. You know, when we shot the ball well, when things were going great for us offensively, we, we looked like, you know, Dick Bennett's teams defensively. And then when we didn't guard well, then it was a lot to ask us to stay locked in defensively. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so there's, you know, another piece to it. And I talk to our guys all the time about this. I mean, the really great teams figure out a ways to win when the ball's not going in. And that's got to be the you know kind of the culture, or the mindset you got to have on the defensive end of the floor. And if you can have that, then you got a chance to be really special. Absolutely. Two more, two more questions on sure. closeout. I assume I I assume the first. This is the simple question on the first one. You guys are doing closeouts every day. I would assume. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Where Where do you like to put those in your practice plan? So I just made ours up uh, right before you called tonight for tomorrow morning, and we will go with the, tomorrow. We're going to go with the diagonal closeouts, and uh, and with that, we're only going for an hour tomorrow. But it's we go, you know, we're just going to get some defensive stuff to get loose. Then we're going to go one on one live, 
Then we have uh, a breakdown of shell where we're guarding down screens, flare screens, staggered doubles, and basket cuts. And then we're guarding closeouts. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I would say it's within the first 20 to 25 minutes of that hour that we're into to what we're doing because we want to do a, a, a focused time period on it. But then it obviously when we go live shell the last 10 minutes of practice, you know, it's, it's a down and back every time you don't close with your hands high, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, it obviously it's a build up to when we get live and then you're expected to do all of the breakdown drills the right way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we'll get it in there. Like I said, probably in the first 20 minutes tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. Coach Eisner, awesome stuff. We, we had three other things that we wanted to get to, but we, we just, you know, I'm a shell drill guy, rotation and pack line type of stuff. And, and uh heck like i told you before we started if we get going on something we're just going to let it roll so no, this uh, was awesome, buddy. We, we just let it rip so uh I, I i tell you what uh maybe next spring we can jump into these other three things that we had uh thrown down here or get you on a quick hitter at some point to to talk about that a little bit more how about that Marty, anytime you uh, want me to talk basketball, I'd love to be on again. Yeah, you know, I I never I, I never have anybody that says, "Nah, I hate talking about basketball." Let's say, you know, leave me alone, Plum, leave me alone. So I appreciate it very much, Coach. It's greatly appreciated, uh, Coach. I've had uh, I hope you've uh, had a good time on the podcast tonight. It was great, Marty. I really appreciate you having me on, and it's always great to speak to people out in the Omaha area. Very good, yes. Um, and Omaha's a, a happier place today after the Huskers played so well yesterday, too. So I, 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 saw, I saw the score. I'm a little bit of a Badger fan, although I'm going to hide on that uh, factor uh, this year, I think, because they can't score outside their shadow right now. <laughs> yeah. See, I uh, I grew up in Iowa, so uh, I'm a bit of a polygamist. I'm a Hawkeye and a Cyclone fan. I, I cheer for them both. Uh, <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, uh, Iowa, uh, you know, I, I thought they'd be pretty decent this year, but they're if if their offense can even come close to their their execution of their defense, they're going to be really, really hard to beat. So yeah, if, they look good. If, if they can beat Penn State this week, you know, Boy, they got a real chance to make a big run here, and and I think Iowa State will get back into it in the Big 12 as well. So, Um, All right, well, hey, Coach, if you could hold the line here just a second as we wrap stuff up here. Uh, Todd Eisner, the men's basketball coach at Winona State University. Uh, We want to thank him for coming on. We want to thank Kosak Chiropractic. Oh, Coach, before I forget, shoot, I forgot. Uh, Any social media that you want to plug for yourself or your program? Well, just I mean our Twitter feeds uh, for Winona, at, at Winona State Basketball, and then obviously I'm at C- Coach Todd Eisner. And um, if anybody has any questions at all, I'm always free and available. But uh, yeah, you can always follow Winona State Basketball or, or my personal Twitter account, and um, we'll try to get out and promote as many things as we can. We're just really excited to get going here on the 15th, and and uh, I was uh, it hasn't been very friendly to come back to Wayne State. We've played. And Coach Kaminsky does such a great job, mm-hmm. but it's always great to get back to Nebraska and play Wayne State. I just like to beat him every once in a while. And that hasn't <laughs> happened. That hasn't happened very often. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. He uh, he kind of took over uh, a place that was a little bit down, and and he's kind of got it back rolling the way uh, the way it has been in the past. So yeah, he's uh, doing a great job. Yep. So well, again, uh, we want to thank Cosac Chiropractic. Follow uh, Pen and a Napkin on Twitter at a Pen and a Napkin. 
if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me, a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. And of course, check out a pen and a napkin.com, uh, the website that is proverbially under construction. If I could just get away from these pesky government lesson plans, I would be able to do a lot more with that. So, but uh, again, I want to thank Todd Eisner for coming on here uh, this week. Great conversation. Uh, hopefully our, our discussion on defense and shell drill and all of that is going to help your team perform better this year. Coaches, as always, let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.